Welcome to the Rock is George podcast. I'm your host, George Dion. This is episode 34. Thank you for tuning in to the Rock is George podcast at anchor.fm slash rock is George or at YouTube. I have a very special guest on the Rock is George podcast for episode 34. I first laid ears on him in 1987 with the release of his guitar instrumental album, Surfing with the Alien. So now you've figured out my guest is the legendary guitarist, Joe Satriani. Even though Joe's landmark album is Surfing with the Alien, he's had plenty of great instrumental and vocal albums throughout the years. I'm a big fan of 1998's Crystal Planet, 2000's Engines of Creation, 2004 is their Love in Space, 2015 Shockwave Supernova, and 2020 Shapeshifting. All fantastic albums. The albums in between were good too, but those were just more of the notable ones that I really enjoyed. Joe Satriani went on to form the band Chicken Foot with Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony of Van Halen, and Chad Smith of Red Hot Chili Peppers. They released three albums. Joe has a new album coming out on April 8th, 2022, called The Elephants of Mars. It's a very diverse guitar instrumental album. He goes to many different places that he may not have gone before. It's a fantastic album if you're a fan of the electric guitar, although his band kind of makes their stamp known on this album as well. So I'm proud to present guitar legend Joe Satriani for episode 34 of the Rock is George podcast. Yo, if I knew absolutely nothing about your music, how would you describe it to me? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you can start generally by saying uh, instrumental electric guitar rock, you know, just so you know that it's not blues, reggae, hip hop, pop, whatever. You know, I, I think um, if I had to look back, I hate analyzing myself. I think it's the worst thing you can do as an artist of any kind. You just leave that to the professionals, you know. Uh, when pressed to do so, I would say I definitely uh, lean really heavy on strong melodies, uh, unique harmonies, fat, comfortable grooves, interesting uh, recording textures. I mean, that's, you know, although I'm, I can't help but be a product of my generation, those are the things that I've really worked on the most. And I know this, I have these insights mainly because my very good friend, Steve, I has been so good at being an honest springboard. Every time I make a record, I'll send it to him, you know, a month or so before it comes out and he'll write a critique and he kind of explains to me what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> and I've often said to him, I have no idea what kind of a record I've made until I get a report back from him, you know? So, um, so, but that that kind of echoes it because you know he'll point that out, those elements out quite often, and and I don't notice them because everything's difficult for me when I'm playing guitar. You know what I mean? Everything seems equally difficult if I'm just trying to figure out what kind of vibrato to use on one note. To me, it's it's everything. It's the world. It's the entire universe. It's like a weight uh, on my shoulders. How I'm going to play that one note. Or it's equally the same if I've got something that is the fastest thing I've ever played or has the longest solo I've ever done. It seems equally monumental as, as a task, even though I've invented it and I love it, 
it's still, uh, it's right, you know, they're on par as far as uh, how seriously I take them. Your latest album is The Elephants of Mars. It comes out on April 8th on Ear Music. I felt it was sort of a cinematic type album, like every track I was listening to wasn't a continuation of a soundtrack, but more of its own sort of one was sci-fi, one was action, one was drama, one was thriller. <laughs> I thought night scene was sort of like a, a nighttime scene in Miami Vice. So was that something, <laughs> was the cinematic thing something you went for? I did. I, you know, I think one of the overriding themes of the album was the fact that I was doing it in private. It had such a liberating effect on the kinds of things that I felt free to write about. Because uh, at, at no point when I said to somebody, you know, I've got this idea about the future and scientists terraform Mars and somehow they do, don't realize that they've created a race of sentient gigantic elephants and they align with the, the rock and roll guitar playing colonists to liberate the newly terraform Mars from the evil corporations of Earth. You know, to me, that's like a normal thing. I get all excited and I turn the amps on and I start writing. But if I said that to a group of people, most people would really laugh and you'd never get to the next step of actually, you know, turning that into a piece of music. And every step of the way, whether it's a deep science fiction story like that, or it's something really simple, like Bluefoot Groovy, like I just feel great, like want to show this person that I'm all that, you know, it's just a totally feel good kind of a more, more of a visceral song than an intellectual song. You know, I, I'm not embarrassed to do that. Of course, when I'm by myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I think that that created this sort of uh, artistic license, you know, for me to just say, yeah, go ahead. Night scene. Yeah. Really retro synthy, you know, pump and bass and, synth tones that are you know you've never used before that kind of stuff it really opened the door to more expressive guitar playing which is you know was one of the things that was on my list of things to get to for this album you know write better arrange better play better get more interesting guitar sounds just basically raise the level of quality the standard of the instrumental guitar album so it's not just a demonstration of of you know, Chop saying, hey, look how fast I can play. Come see me on tour. I don't need to do that. It's album number 19. <laughs> I think people <laughs> think about what that I can play, you know? <laughs> Touched on it briefly with the song, The Elephant of Mars, and I've watched your YouTube videos breaking down Sahara and Faceless. Do you always have a story in mind when you're writing these instrumental compositions? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it, sometimes the story really does precede the writing of the music. Other times the story is something that uh, comes as I gain pers perspective on how, what the song means to me. Uh, I could give you like an example, like Faceless uh, was something that I felt all at once. And I wrote the song as, as, that, as I was immersed in that feeling, you know, someone feeling so isolated because they can't be recognized for their true self. But a song like Desolation uh, was so difficult to get to because it started in a completely different 
musical tangent. I, I'd written this small piece of music that had this beautiful theme and my producer got a hold of it and he thought, I'll let, let me see if I can turn this into something really long. And after a few months, he sent it back and it was 20 minutes long. And he had written this long orchestral crescendo leading up to my part in the, and he put it in the middle and he expanded and repeated the motifs and melodies and harmonies that were part of my original song. And then he added this orchestral improvisation at the end. When I listened to this whole thing, the first thing I thought was, well, you can't release that on an album. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> way, it's way too long. It's not 1971 anymore, you know? And then I thought, well, at the, the middle part, I don't really like this song that I've written that much. Like I don't, it was a nice little musical cue for let's say a TV show, but I don't think it's, it, it's the quality of it is not high enough to be on one of my albums. But that third part, I thought, wow, every time I get to that third part, I, I kind of get super emotional. So I thought I have to figure out what is this triggering in me? So I called Eric and I said, look, you're not gonna believe this, but let's get rid of part one and let's get rid of part two. You know, I apologize for all the work you did, but even my part, I don't like anymore. But what I love is your thing at the end and uh, so I'll, I'll, I just have to figure out what to play on it. Uh, in the end, what happened was I started to realize that what it triggered in me was this idea that at a deathbed scene, there's two things happening. There's the person dying and there's the person who's gonna be left behind. And the both of them are engaging in all kinds of memories and feelings of uh, you know, fear, regret, uh, happiness, fulfillment, and it goes back and forth between these two people. Maybe perhaps they're in love. And I thought there's, it needs to be somehow represented musically. So how do you do that? So I come into the studio and I try day after day to get into that zone and to truthfully record myself feeling that and exploring that dialogue that might be going on between these two people. And then one day it happened and that was it. And, and I sent it to Eric and I said, this is it. It's, it's just a live performance, but this tells the story. And of course we, we realized it was very powerful, but the, the only place we could put it would be at the end because it would be kind of a bummer to put it anywhere else you know, on the album. You never know when you're writing if, you know, how it's gonna play out. Like I said, it, it could be a story you start with, or a story you discover that's deep inside. Even though the album bears your name, this album was kind of a group effort between Brian, Kenny, Rye, and your producer, Eric? Yes, yeah. Well, Eric and I, you know, we met in 96. He was brought in as a, a digital editor for the G3 Live DVD um, and, and CD package. So, because we had three bands, three nights recorded, all these songs and he had to somehow, once he got information from the three different bands from Eric and Steve, had to somehow prepare it and get it all together for Mike Fraser who was uh, mixing the project. And then right after that, we decided to work together on the, the, um, the next record, which was Crystal Planet. And he, he wound up creating, since I made no demos for that album, it was really weird that record because all I did was write everything down on, on uh, some paper and I rehearsed with the band. So we never heard any demos to change 
alter our perception of where the songs could go. And then I asked Eric to, to work up techno versions of every song that uh, Stu and, and Jeff and I would hear in our headphones while we were tracking as a power trio. And it really changed the way that we played because we heard all this, you know, chicka 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 sequence stuff going on. And we would react to it. When Mike went to mix it, I said, just bring all that stuff out. Just, you know, maybe a couple of songs have some of those techno elements, but actually I just wanted the energy there to, to affect the band. So anyway, that's another interview. Um, <laughs> so we, then we did the uh, Engines of Creations record in his living room. <laughs> you know no speakers it was a totally trance techno record uh then he joined the band for maybe a tour or two and then he's worked on and off as an editor uh, mixer co-writer uh, uh so on this album uh he definitely uh was the producer and um and he co-wrote three of the songs with me so yeah lots of great input from everybody is there a significance behind the address on the track East 104th Street, New York City? Yes, uh, that address between First and Second Avenue is where my father was born and raised. And uh, as a kid, you know, I was there every weekend visiting my grandparents and my cousins and the uncles. And it was a great time in the 60s. We, we lived just about 30 minutes outside the city. So uh, it was a, a, a change of venue for sure for a kid growing up in the suburbs. To, to go to the city and have fun. In the 70s, of course, you know, I was coming of age. I was, I was a new young musician. I was hanging out, uh, watching concerts at Central Park and uh, Fillmore East uh, and getting my guitars worked on on 48th Street. And uh, it's just a great scene, all the music, but it was a scary city in going through a really rough economic decline oil embargo, inflation, just everything that was, you know, the 60s were burning hard. <laughs> they, they just kind of delivered the 70s like a, you know, pre-charred decade. And, you know, and there was just all this stuff between jazz and fusion and rock and the beginning of disco and punk. And there I was sort of coming of age during that period. And I wanted to write about that some sort of overall vibe for that moment. And I had to pick a date that somehow summed it up. So I, I kind of zoned in on 73 because it seemed like that was the sum total of a lot of that, you know? So I was just thinking, yeah, it's, you, you know, four in the morning, you're at some studio or some club, you got your guitar and wah-wah and you're just doing a really cool jam and it's sort of between rock and jazz and, and it's freeform. I love that period as I was learning to be an intermediate, hoping to be an advanced player, that that was the kind of stuff that we would play or we would see at the blue note or something like that. You know, when you went to see, I don't know. I, I remember seeing uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra uh, at uh, Central Park and it just blew my mind. I mean, just how great John McLaughlin and that whole band was. Just, but that was the vibe, you know, at the time. After 19 studio albums of mostly instrumental work, have you ever duplicated yourself? I don't ask myself those kinds of questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing like your friend taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, by the way, you did that on the last record. You know? I don't know. I, I suppose it's, it would be good to, you know, 
to be the ultimate arbiter, you know, to go back and say, you know, to check yourself on all your records. But there's something about going backwards that's really counterproductive for any artistic, you know, pursuit. You should just keep moving forward. If something sounds a little bit like something before, perhaps you say, sorry, and then you say, yeah, but who else should be able to do that? Probably me, I'm the only one who's allowed <laughs> to cover the same ground, but that's okay. I mean, I think the most important part is what, what new have you put into it? You know what I mean? Like, you know, 120 beats per minute, how many songs in, in a musician's career have they played that have the same tempo? So that would be a very high number, right? That's not a bad thing. How about how many songs have, has a musician played in their 40, 50 years that are in the key of C? That would be thousands probably. <laughs> that, that shouldn't deter you from doing another song in the key of C. So at some point you arrive at this really finite argument like, well, you played that phrase kind of like that, you know, seven albums ago and you're like, give me a break, you know. <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> There's some musicians out there that say rock and roll is dead. So I would pose the question to you, is the guitar dying? Because there's not a lot of guitar in today's mainstream rock. And, you know, there's not a lot of guitar-centric artists out there anymore. Yeah, well, that won't change what I do. Um, and I would say if you spend any time on social media, you will find a young generation of guitar players who are playing better and more intricate, more complicated music than has ever been played in, in the history of civilization. I'm not kidding. I mean, what the young guitar players can do today is absolutely mind blowing. It's fascinating. It is proof that the human potential keeps growing and they're doing it on you know six, seven, uh, eight and 10 string guitars. Uh, they are playing faster, more complicated. It's really remarkable what they're doing. They are, you know, you're right. They're not being rewarded in the pop world. BTS is the biggest band in the world. Of course, they're not going to have a three-minute solo uh, by a guitar player playing an eight-string guitar. You know, it's just not going to happen. That's tough for them. They're not getting any support. Uh, there are fewer live places uh, that will hire them to play. Uh, it's not when I was young, there were so many bars and so many places to play that within months of me learning how to play guitar, I was performing live and making 10, 15, 20 bucks enough to buy strings. And, uh, you know, that's it was interesting. It, it helped me grow as a musician. And, uh, and then when I was a professional, the craziest thing happened people started playing my instrumentals on the radio again. That's because I got support. So I was extremely lucky that I was getting support from the outside world. But it doesn't change the fact that if you took a bunch of us old guitar players and you put us in a room with these young players, they would shred us to death. <laughs> you know, I think a lot about this because every day, I kid you not, I check them out. And it's what makes me feel excited about practicing, you know, because. On the one hand, it kind of puts me in my place, but it's like, okay, I know I've been around the block. I deserve it. But on the other hand, I go, but look what, look what they come up with. That's the human potential right there. So maybe I can get a little better if it just 
watch them a little longer. <laughs> It'll rub off. <laughs> yeah, it, that part of it's really tough. You know, you can't look at the, I don't know. You know, before Hendrix broke, the, the top, the billboard charts look pretty scary, you know? <laughs> it's like every time you try to uh, generalize about where things are going, you're making a big mistake. Oh, I've looked at the charts today and this is what's happening. So tomorrow you can't be happening. That to me is, you know, that's just crap. <laughs> we Absolutely. don't know it's who's going to be popular tomorrow. It might be a 19 year old guitar player who plays faster than we can hear. And he just happens to wrap it up in something that the world wants to hear over and over again. Don't count them out now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to be able to tour on the new album? You weren't able to tour on Shapeshifting. I know. Yeah, that that's weird. I mean, that's what led to the creation of this album. But we will get on stage, I believe, by the, the last quarter of this year or the last third of this year. And we'll celebrate both albums, finally. There'll be a lot of new material to play in front of people. So I know we're talking every day, my crew, my management agent, getting it all together. Everyone's a little gun shy about it, but every time we hear somebody goes out on tour and then all of a sudden we hear they get canceled again because they get sick, it's a real bummer. I really appreciate those bands going out and trying to push the envelope, you know, because they're, they're kind of setting up, they're testing the protocol for all of us, you know, uh, whether it's Dream Theater or Justin Bieber, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to keep their audiences safe and their crew safe and themselves safe. But I think that's coming. I think it's, uh, I have this feeling like in six months, everything's going to be way better than it is now. So in addition to creating music, you've done some artwork lately on canvas, on guitars. I noticed that white guitar behind you. Is that one of the oh, ones that yeah. you painted? Yes. <laughs> These guys are always looking at the strings like he played what, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I always, I remember taking that one out on the 2018 uh, g3 tour and that was it was a good way that i keep myself in check you know laugh at myself for trying all the crazy things i try on stage through my association with the scene for art collective doing uh all the time-lapse photography canvases with them and then some uh mixed media stuff with them they introduced me to uh christian o'mahoney who owns the wentworth gallery chain on the east coast of the u.s uh he commissioned me to do several hundred uh, paintings, some on guitars and, and mostly on canvas. And so I've been super busy the last, I don't know, 14 months doing that. And I really love it. I just, just yesterday, I sent uh, 10 more out and the week before that, 10 more out. So uh, I've, been, I've been learning to be uh, a better artist every day. And I'm so grateful that they've given me this opportunity, you know, to put my crazy ideas on these big canvases. It's really exciting. It's, I tell you, when you walk into a gallery and you see something, some weird face or circle or whatever that you, you created, you know, and it's hanging up in a gallery wall and people are looking at it and buying it. And it's really like when you hear one of your songs on the radio for the first time, it's totally surreal. And you go, how did that get from in here to out there? <laughs> it's, uh, it's remarkable. What do you think of Steve Vai's Hydra creation guitar? Insane. 
It's funny you should say that because I just got, I'm looking at my laptop and I just got a text that's like this long from Steve. <laughs> so he must have something to tell me. But uh, before then, uh, about a week and a half ago, he sent me a bunch of video clips of him actually playing it. Cause I already told him, you know, he's got this problem with his shoulder. And I said, Steve, why did you create a triple heavy guitar? <laughs> if you know, you, you're going in for a shoulder uh, surgery, but uh, there's nobody like Steve. I mean, it's just his, his creativity and his power of concentration is unparalleled. I've never known anybody who, once they get an idea about something, they pursue it like nothing else and, and they achieve it, you know? So not only did he build this beautiful thing or ordered it, built, designed it, but he can actually play it. And that's when he sent me those video clips, I thought, oh, that's really, he is really insane. I mean, I knew he was insane before, but now it's like, now I've got video clips. <laughs> <laughs> you hinted on your website that you might've had a rough album that's vocal centric versus guitar centric. No, no. You know, what happened was uh, at the beginning, the first lockdown that we had, I started to think that it would make sense to record two albums to showcase the new band. So I had uh, Ray Thistlethwaite on uh, keyboards and guitar, and he's also an amazing lead vocalist for the band Thirsty Merc. So I thought it might be cool to show the audience that he's also this guy because you know they're they're a, a platinum act in in australia but i don't think many people know who they are out here in the u.s i wanted to showcase him to so people could hear all of his talents then i thought well i've got brian beller and kenny arano for the first time being a live rhythm section and i wanted to create an album where they could stretch out and i thought well we'll do these two albums and we give the tracks away as like freebies when we finally do uh hit the stage as a sort of a supplement to shape-shifting. But as you know, you know, three months turned into six, six turned into nine, nine turned into a year and then a year and a half. And, and that's when I realized, well, no, by the time I put out new music, people are going to expect a brand new album. You know, they will have taken in uh, 2020 shape-shifting and thought, well, okay, now what's next? It's 2022, it's, uh, you know, maybe 23. I had no idea. So I thought I better you know, come up with something even bigger and bolder, put those supplemental albums on the uh, forgotten list <laughs> or to-do list, you know, in the future. Well, the new album, The Elephants of Mars, it is bigger and it is bolder and it comes out April 8th on Ear Music. Fantastic job, Joe. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. Enjoy that whiskey behind you. I will. I'll have one in your honor. Once again, I want to thank legendary guitarist Joe Satriani for coming on the Rock is George podcast. Check out his new album, The Elephants of Mars. It's out on Ear Music April 8th, 2022. Head over to satriani.com for more details. You can check out a couple of the singles from the album on your favorite music streaming platforms. If you like what you hear, order a copy of the album on vinyl or CD. Make sure you're supporting the artist. I want to thank Ear Music and Susan from Playground Music for making this interview possible. You've been great. I've been George Dion, and I'll see you again soon. Mm -hmm.